You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, have you ever missed have you ever missed one of those golden opportunities that in hindsight when you look back on it it was clear that there was a great opportunity there you just missed it. Maybe it was a, a job opportunity that came and went and you kind of fumbled it or it was a relationship, maybe a chance to network or maybe even a, a love interest that kind of slipped through your fingers or maybe it was an investment opportunity. You know, and if you'd have just invested $1,000, you'd be a multi-billionaire today. I've had a few of those opportunities that I've missed. But when I read this story I want to share with you, it made me feel really good about myself, okay? You remember the, the company Blockbuster? Back in the year 2000, they were considered the king of home entertainment. When along came this struggling company known as Netflix... It was a mail-order online kind of company. They would ship you DVDs in the mail. Well, they were really struggling. And their CEO made an appeal to Blockbuster to sell Netflix for $50 million. And they were laughed out of the building. (laughs) And the uh, head of Blockbuster said the offer was absolutely ludicrous. Well, we know what happened next. Netflix got into streaming People stopped renting DVDs, Blockbuster was slow to react and fell into decline. And today, Netflix is valued at more than $70 billion. Man, if we'd have just pulled the trigger, right? I'm not sure that we could have gotten 50 billion or 50 million together, but it's terrible to miss important moments like that. Well, Paul finishes this letter to the Galatians, and it was Paul's custom that after dictating an entire letter to someone who would write it out for him, he would take the pen and he would write his own personal farewell. And his standard sign-off on most of his letters was typically, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. But it seems that Paul is so concerned that the Galatian people get this message that's in this letter So clearly, it's so important that they get it, that he actually takes the pen and he writes the entire conclusion in his own handwriting. This is what verse 11 says. Look what. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. If the handwriting seems to have changed, Paul wants you to know why. It's because I'm writing now. So he takes the pen and he finishes the letter in his own large, clumsy hand handwriting. And he wrote it probably to say, hey, don't miss this. Don't miss. This is so important to me. I'm going to write it myself. Some Bible scholars believe that Paul, as you know, had this thorn in the flesh, and they believe that his thorn in the flesh had something to do with an eye problem. And this would mean that Not only was his handwriting clumsy, but he probably wrote in large letters so that he was able to read what he was writing. As a student in Bible college, I had a part-time job as a driver for a blind piano tuner. His name was Jeff, and as a driver, I would take him to appointments all around the city of Cincinnati. 
Jeff lost his eyesight in high school due to a virus that attacked his optic nerves, but he wasn't totally blind. Jeff could see to read large print, block letters. So I would pick him up, and he would get in the car with a sheet from a legal pad, and on it would be printed in his handwriting, very, very big and jaggedy, would be the addresses of all of the appointments that we had that day. And he could read them, but he would hold the paper right up to his eyes, literally less than a half an inch away in order to read them. He was an amazing guy. He knew the entire city of Cincinnati, like the back of his hand. We didn't have Google Maps or any kind of Garmin or anything like that. He would say, come up here to the stoplight. There'll be a Dunkin' Donuts on the right. Take a left. You know, he knew all of that. It was It was fascinating. Regardless of whether Paul wrote in large letters so that he could read it, like my old boss Jeff did, or Paul was just writing this himself, and he's drawing attention to that because he is making it clear that he has something important to say as he closes this letter. In this letter, Paul has shown us That the believer living under the law and the believer living under grace are living dramatically opposed to each other. It's, It's not just different doctrines here. It's a matter of two different ways of life. Those under the Judaizers, the legalists, and those under the Spirit of God. Two different. In chapters 5 and 6, which we've studied in this part of the, the series called Freedom... Paul has explained the choices between these two different lifestyles. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, he's, he showed us about the choice between bondage and freedom. And then in chapter 5, verses 13 through 26, he pointed out the choice between the flesh and the spirit. And then last week, we looked at Galatia, or Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, and he points out that you have to choose between living for oneself versus living for others. And now today, he points out the fourth contrast. And this must be important because he writes it in his own handwriting, maybe the most important of all of them. This is the contrast of, between living for the praise of man or the glory of God. In this part of the letter, Paul addresses the motives that we have in ministry. A motive is a reason for doing something, especially one that is hidden or not obvious. There's a need in the church today that we would examine our motives that we have for our ministries. What is the reason that we're here? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Are my motives so that God gets the glory, or am I siphoning off some of the attention myself? When our motives aren't checked, we run the risk of abandoning God's ordained purposes for why we're here. Last year, one of my ministry heroes resigned in disgrace after more than 40 years in ministry. This is a man that God had used to inspire me on countless occasions over the course of my ministry. He was accused of immorality, and this was difficult for me to believe because of all that I knew about him. 
But as more and more information came forth, it was apparent that the accusations had some truth to him, and as a result, he resigned. I'm confident that this man was committed to God when he began ministry. So how does something like this happen? Well, he either started with flawed motives, or somewhere along the way he stopped checking his motives. He wasn't accountable, and eventually he started to drift away from them. You see, we may know what we are doing, but do we know why we are doing it? A good work is easily spoiled by a bad motive. The main motive that Paul emphasizes here at the end of Galatians, the sixth chapter, emphasizes something that is very, very important to all of us. And I think it's why he wrote it himself. That is to live for the praise of God only. What is your motive? Is your motive, not just in this environment, but in every environment that you will partake in this week, is it your objective, is it your purpose to bring glory and praise to God alone? Or are you in it for yourself and the praise of men? In this text, Paul reveals three key angles that help keep God the focus of our praise. And the first of these is found in verse 12. He says this, he says, be aware, some will use others, they may even use you, to get the praise of men. And be aware that you're not one of those people. Be aware that people will use others to get the praise of from man. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He says, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. This is an interesting verse. He said, those who want to impress you. These false teachers in Galatia were eager to put a good face on their ministry, what they were doing there. These were Jews who said, you have to follow certain aspects of the Old Testament law in conjunction with the grace of God, in your relationship with Jesus, in order to be saved. They were diluting grace by infiltrating some of the law. And since circumcision was the issue at hand, the expression that Paul uses here when he says, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh, he's probably... He means this quite literally. It's a reference to circumcision. He says they're trying to compel you, which gives us the impression that they will do just about anything. They will go to great lengths in order to manipulate you, to get you to do what they want you to do. I got a call one day, several years ago now, from a guy who was a casual friend of mine. Not someone I knew very well, someone I've known for a long time. He said he had something that was very important that he wanted to talk with me about. He needed to talk to me about it. So he said, uh, could we get together as soon as possible? Sensitive to the urgency, I asked him, what does this have to do with? What's the situation? But he wouldn't talk about it over the phone. So I arranged to meet with him as soon as I could 
We got together. He began to explain about an investment opportunity that was a can't miss opportunity. I changed my schedule for this. It was a new drug, he said, that had promising, it was showing promising uh, effects on a cure for certain types of cancer. And I told him, I said, I wasn't interested because I didn't have money that I could lose on something like this. Besides, my wife wasn't with me to sign the checks. (laughs) I was limited here. He said to me, he said, you'll make a lot of money. This will provide for your family in the future, and you're going to help a lot of people along the way. I honestly can't remember a whole lot. As I was writing this for this message today, I couldn't remember much of what happened in the conversation after that because he just continued to bully me because I wasn't interested in investing in his project. At one point, he actually swore at me because I was putting my family's future in jeopardy because I wouldn't invest in this project. Oh, I forgive him and I love him today, but some people, this is a perfect example, will go to great lengths to try to accomplish their own purposes, even if it means manipulating you in the process. It is typical of the intolerant person to try to coerce others to submit to his or her demands. Paul himself had once been just like this when he was a zealous Jew. Scripture records he went from synagogue to synagogue trying to find Christians to compel them to blaspheme God. And as a result, he made quite a name for himself among the Jewish culture. The false teachers of Galatia were trying to compel the Gentile believers to be circumcised. And the question that comes to my mind as I studied this was, why would any of this matter to them? Were they afraid that failure to be circumcised might cause the Galatians to miss out on heaven? It's more likely that it was their egotism that needed to proved that they were right and the uncircumcised believers were wrong. Paul goes on in verse 12, he says, the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. It's possible Paul's idea in this sentence is to show that the Judaizers didn't really have a worthy motivation for mandating circumcision, other than they were trying to avoid persecution. Now, this raises another question. Where's the persecution coming from? See, the Romans hadn't started persecuting the church yet. The most plausible explanation is that the persecution was coming at the hands of Jewish zealots operating out of Palestine. Growing Jewish nationalism had made it increasingly difficult for Jews who wanted to associate with Gentiles. So if these Judaizers could show that a few Gentiles were converting in a way through circumcision to Judaism, that might deflect some of the persecution from them. Paul says in verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law, 
Yet they want you to be circumcised that, you, that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. This is really complicated. They want you to do things so they look good, and yet they're not even doing the things that the law says. This is kind of interesting because the Judaizers seriously were selective about their demands for obeying the law. It wasn't that they denied the law, just that they didn't regard its requirements very carefully. They seem to have exalted circumcision to a point that proper obedience to this one ritual made the rest of the law of very little importance. And this may sound bizarre, but I think it's true. These false teachers wanted to boast about the number of circumcisions for which they were responsible for. Is this conversation getting awkward for anyone but me? Somebody's going to brag about this? If they had had a national Judaizers journal, you would probably read the headline somewhere in the journal, eight circumcisions in a successful gospel meeting last week. You know, praise the Lord. That's the mindset that they had. The number of circumcisions was an important accomplishment, highly regarded among the Judaizers. How crazy is this? Well, Paul points out, in these few verses, that we need to be aware that there are people, not just in this context, but throughout Christendom, that there will be people who will use you and others to get the praise of men. And they will couch that within the context of ministry. Be aware. There's a second angle that Paul gave to help keep God the focus of our praise, and that is brag about Jesus's sacrifice. That's where we boast. We brag about Jesus's sacrifice. Verse 14 says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In sharp contrast to the crass boasting over circumcision, Paul singles his purpose was to boast in the cross of of Jesus Christ, period. While there are times when it's probably okay for us to brag a little bit about our own accomplishments, all of those things pale in comparison to what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. Whatever we do in ministry, whatever, however great it might be, it is long, far, far from the accomplishments that Jesus made at Calvary. You know, after watching the movie, The Passion of the Christ, several years ago, I found myself really troubled, like many others, of the brutality of crucifixion, the beating before, and then the actual death on the cross. Now, I knew, having studied this in Bible college and all through my ministry career, the crucifixion was horrible. But I came to understand that what was horrible in my mind wasn't close to what was horrible in the movie. And then I had this moment where I thought, I'm pretty sure that the depiction that Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of Christ, as graphic and troubling as it was, probably wasn't even close to what Jesus actually went through on the cross. It was probably even worse than that. And if you think about it, it's a grisly thing to boast about. 
But the cross was just that. It was shameful. It was a symbol of suffering and humiliation in the first century culture. Throughout the ancient world, the cross was reserved for slaves and for the lowest of criminals. And it was forbidden as a punishment for Roman citizens. Cicero said that the very word cross was unmentionable in polite society. It was that offensive, and yet Paul says, that's what I brag about. Because it was there that Paul's sins were forgiven. He goes on in verse 14, he says, Through which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. Now this idea of world that he uses here is the state of existence that stands in opposition to God. God still loves the world, even though they're opposed to him. And he longs for them to be saved. But those who choose the world instead of God will ultimately perish. So when Paul says he's crucified to the world, he means he rejects the world, the ways of the world. There's three different facets of this being crucified to the world I think are important. To be dead to the world is the first one. To be dead to worldly concerns is the first one. Give no thought to the things that are important to the world. That's a different track. That's a different direction. Secondly, he says, to be isolated from worldly pursuits. That means to be set apart from the sinful strategies of the world. Don't allow yourself to get tangled up in them. And then thirdly, be indifferent to worldly temptations. We need to be aware of these temptations and avoid these sinful enticements. Give temptation no power in your life, no authority in your life. For Paul, just as for every Christian who follows Jesus, the cross becomes the pivotal point of reckoning where the believer and the world part ways. This verse, verse 14, where Paul talks about he'll boast only in the cross, was so inspiring to songwriter Isaac Watts that he composed one of Christianity's all-time favorite hymns, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Because of verse 14 in Galatians 6. Listen to the first verse. He writes, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died... My richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. The sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross is so important that it's what we brag about. And all the other accomplishments, everything else that flows out of the kingdom of God and out of the people of God is secondary to the cross. So Paul says, brag about the cross of Jesus. Well, the third angle that Paul gives us to help keep God the focus of our praise is to make sure that you are a new creation. A new creation. Verse 15 says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Good, we're talking about circumcision again. You missed it, didn't you? I'm glad we circled back. As Paul recaps the highlights of his letter to the churches in Galatia, in his own handwriting, he repeats this crucial truth that he mentioned back in chapter 5, verse 6, 
where he said, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Whether or not a man's body has been circumcised is irrelevant. A man is not closer to God because he's been circumcised, nor is a man more superior to others if he's not been circumcised. Paul's point, spiritually speaking here, is this. God cares more what a man is depending on for his salvation than the condition of his body. If he's depending on circumcision to save him, that man cannot count on Jesus to help him because he's put his faith in something else. But if he's depending on Jesus, then he will be saved regardless of what he may have done in the past. And everybody would say amen to that. You know, it's so easy to do things in order to get the applause of men, isn't it? I wonder what that is for you. I know what it is for me. For me, it's always been to make people laugh. I suppose I was in elementary school when I first realized that I could make people laugh. The older I got, the better I was at it. And this was great for a kid who didn't stand out academically or athletically. I got noticed because people always like the guy who makes them laugh. I realized for me that this is where I sought the praise of men. Not back in elementary or even in high school, but years later, I realized this is where I got my attaboys and my pats on the back. The older I've gotten, there have been many doors of opportunity that my sense of humor have opened for me. Invitations to host and MC banquets and speak at various events, both inside the church and outside the church. Invitations to roast important people. Trust me, that is a lot of fun. And yes, I have even publicly recited poetry that I have personally written. And it was funny. The problem with humor is knowing where the line is and never crossing it. As a younger man, I'd occasionally use innuendo or double entendres to get a cheap laugh. But God got my attention a few years ago, and I made the commitment to not to do that intentionally any, anymore. Today, I try to use humor for kingdom purposes. It's probably one of the most disarming things that I've ever seen. When people laugh, they relax. And they tend to be more open and willing to listen to what you have to say. I try to use humor for kingdom purposes, though I'm not always perfect. I found myself just Wednesday, after having written this part of the talk, that I had crossed the line. I think that's not funny, but uh, I do think it's ironic that I just wrote this. You would think I might try to live up to it. But I made a joke that wasn't probably appropriate at the time. And I apologize for it. What's the area that you're tempted by to get the applause of men? You see, we may put a lot of confidence in being recognized and valued for things that we do. But Paul makes this 
very simple statement that there's only one thing that truly counts. He says in verse 15 at the end, he said, what counts is the new creation. What matters is whether people have been spiritually reborn so that Christ is formed in them. What a believer, when a believer surrenders to Jesus, that person becomes a new creation. This is what he told the church in Corinth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. This is what counts. This is the one thing that really matters most. So if you want to be a person whose life brings praise and glory to the Lord, you have to be a new creation. You're not going to get there any other way than to do what counts the most. Well, Paul wraps up this letter with verses 16 through 18. He says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. And that's the end of the letter. In history, it doesn't tell us much about what the churches did after they received Paul's letter. We do know that in a broader scope, that within two decades, the discussion about circumcision was no longer an issue for Christians until I brought it up today. While the battle against circumcision was over, the war that raged against legalism still is on today. So it's important to remember that God's grace is enough to be a new creation in Christ because of what he did on the cross is enough. Through this series, we've studied the choices that we face as followers of Jesus. And we've looked at the freedoms that we have to make good choices versus bad choices. And Paul closes this letter with the choice to live for the praise of men or that your life would bring glory to God. We need to check our motives from time to time to see that the things that we are doing truly are bringing glory to him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Paul's words today. Maybe some of the most important in the entire letter as he saw fit to write them with his own hand. Lord, we thank you and we praise you as Paul did for the cross. That it's through the cross that we've become new creations. And God, we're grateful for that. We want our lives to bring glory to you, Lord. We don't want our lives to be about ourselves. So help us, God, to live in such a way that our lives are fragrant offerings to you, holy and pleasing to you. God, that starts by surrendering to you and being crucified to this world, not allowing the, the ways of this world to infiltrate how we think or how we live, but to allow your statutes and your insights from your word to guide our steps. And God, we thank you for the spirit of God that lives in each one of us who's a follower of yours to guide and order our steps. God, I pray today that everyone in this room would be a new creation 
because of what Jesus did on the cross. And if not, I pray that, Lord, that you would pursue them in such a way that they would say, I need to at least check out this man, Jesus, and what he did. God, we pray that everyone would know you in a personal way, that their sins would be washed away and they would have the promise of everlasting life. God, I pray that that would be true. Don't let anybody leave here today, Lord, without that being the case for them. We praise you for the cross and we pray this in the name of the one who died on the cross. His name is Jesus. Amen.